Hi folks, Jim Ryan here. This episode of the podcast is all about where to find the best fish, chips, and chowder on the Oregon coast. We also talk a little about why we're excited about hanging out at the coast during the wintertime. But tragically, a father and his two young children were recently hit by a sneaker wave while walking on an off-beach trail, and they were swept out to sea. One child died, and the other is missing. We wanted to remind you all, before we get started, to take caution along the coast, and please be safe. Anyway, here's the show. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Peak Northwest, an outdoors and travel podcast by The Oregonian and Oregon Live dedicated to the adventure and exploration of our beautiful Pacific Northwest. I'm Jamie Hale. And I'm Jim Ryan. And together, we're taking you, dear listener, to some of the most beautiful and interesting destinations in our region, discussing where to go, what to do, and places to see. And today, Jamie, we're talking about one of your favorite places. And one of the best things to do while you're there. We are devoting this week's episode to sampling the signature cuisine of the Oregon coast, Jamie. Fish, chips, and chowder. That's it. And here to help us out is Michael Russell, the Oregonian and Oregon Lives restaurant reporter and critic. Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, for sure. So before we turn to the food, Jamie, you rave about heading out to the coast in the wintertime. So why should we go there now? I think the winter is one of the best times to go to the coast, actually. I mean, we all go there in the summertime, right? When it's sunny and beautiful and you go to the beach and you hang out. But the winter is when you get like the the other side of the coast, when it's you know, rainy and you get the big waves crashing. And like, that's a really important aspect of what the Pacific Ocean is and what the Oregon coast is. I think if you're going to be an Oregonian and you're going to go to the coast, you got to see both sides of it. Got to see both sides and you got to get some fish, chips and chowder while you're there. Why why is that kind of either one of you guys, the signature dish? I mean, it's, it's all about the seafood, right? It's all about getting it fresh. Getting the fish from the ocean, getting the clams up and down the Pacific coast. And Michael, I'm sure you can talk a little bit more about that, where they're sourcing some of this fish from. But I mean, I I get my fish and chips and chowder at the coast because we're at the coast. That's where you want to get the freshest stuff. That's a really good point. I mean, when I think fish and chips, my mind first goes to the UK. And fish and chips are pretty widely thought of as the national dish of Great Britain, of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. You know, When I think of the Oregon coast and the culinary influences there, I think more about the Scandinavian influences. I actually called up Alex Jackson, who's the chef at this Icelandic restaurant in Portland, and I said, what are the fish and chips of Scandinavia? What do they eat? And he said he'd get back to me. So (laughs) I don't have any great (laughs) intel for you guys. But um, should we dive right into the history of the dish a little bit? Because I'm ready to go there. Yeah, yeah, before we hop into where to go, I think we should explain why we should do it. So So the, the connection between the UK and the Oregon coast is still a little tenuous to me. Maybe you guys can fill in that gap for me. But in the UK, fried fish come from Sephardic Jews who were pushed out of Spain in the 15th century. They moved to Britain and were selling fried fish on the street, including in like a box with a leather strap around their shoulders, walking around selling just the fried fish, not the Hmm. chips yet. And that dish didn't really get paired with chips until the 20th century. When the two came together, the dish exploded in popularity. And at at the peak, there were 35,000 chippies or fish and chip shops in the UK. My gosh. Now now that's down to about 10,000. But people in the UK still eat about 360 million orders of fish and chips a year, which is about six orders per man, woman, and child. (laughs) (laughs) So even though the dish is down a little bit in popularity, it's still extremely popular. What I noticed when I was in in Scotland this last year 
was that the fish and chips there, you get one single piece of fried fish, as opposed to we're used to here in America, a three-piece or a five-piece fish and chips. Because we're gluttons, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> you have just one large piece of fish, right? Well, as I learned recently, sometimes the best order of fish and chips is the one on the kid's menu (laughs) because it might just come with one or two pieces. So yeah, I don't know how it then goes from the UK to the Oregon coast other than the idea that fish and chips are popular anywhere where fish is caught. And obviously there's a lot of fish caught on the Oregon coast. You do see Oregon albacore fish and chips at places like Bow Picker, which is probably Mm -hmm. the most famous fish and chip shop on the greater coast. It's in Astoria and it's inside a little boat that's up on blocks and of course cod being the more common and and most popular fish that's used in fish and chips do you guys have a favorite fish and chips spot in the coast jamie i mean mine is is definitely luna sea and yachts right that's my spot i get to every time i drive through yachts i stop at luna sea and i I have to get some fish and chips there what about it appeals to you we've got the um the guy who who owns the place um, i don't recall his name but he's a fisherman himself and he'll be walking through the shop and talking to people he's brought my order a couple times and and talking about it and you walk in and they have a whiteboard that tells you here's all the different kinds of fish and crab they have and where specifically it was caught this week and i love that transparency about it you can say oh if i want to get some halibut it was caught here or there and you can see if, if you want it really fresh Here's what you're going to get. And then just the quality of it is so good. I like a fish and chips that's not overly fried. That's sort of that lighter batter to it mm. that really lets you taste the actual fish itself. And I, I got to say with Luna Sea, the one thing that pushes it over for me, big bottle of tartar sauce on the table. Squeeze oh, yeah. bottle. Squeeze, squeeze bottle. bottle of tartar sauce. <laughs> not a little cup. They throw that big squeeze bottle down and you can use as much as you want, which I mean, I just, I love that. I love tartar sauce. I like dipping the fries in there. But oh, yeah. when you're in the UK, you tend to just gravitate toward the malt vinegar. Even if you're someone mm-hmm. like me who grew up not really loving malt vinegar, once you're in the UK, you've got this, as you said, one big piece of fish. These chips, which aren't even that crunchy, you know, they've been wrapped in paper. Maybe they've steamed in the paper a little bit. They're almost soggy. And you add a little bit of salt and a little bit of this malt vinegar. And it's crazy. It's like not something I would, I ever ate in the States, but I'm, my parents are both from Scotland, so when, almost every time we go back, one of the nights, the kids and one adult would walk out to the chippy and buy like six orders of fish and chips and bring them back for the family to eat. And in that scenario, it's like you don't mind that the chips aren't that crunchy for some reason. You don't mind that the fish isn't particularly crunchy. And then the malt vinegar somehow just like brings it all together in a weird way that, you know, it's just not, not something I gravitate toward here. Here, I'm a tartar sauce guy, and mm-hmm. I like ketchup too. Of course, ketchup is very vinegar-based, so... It sort of serves a similar purpose. But, Jim, do you have a favorite fish and chip spot in the coast? You know, I was talking before you stepped into the studio here. I was going to say I don't make a good food critic because my criticism is not that deep, right? So food, I'm not going to say it's a utility item for me, but I'm not very critical. So I've had plenty of good fish and chips down the coast. I wouldn't say one stands out well above the rest. You know, unlike you guys, I'm not going out and kind of doing this for work. But, you know, I've recognized the bow picker. Every time I've been through there, there's a line, I would say, out the door, but down the street. They don't have a door. You know, they don't have a door. They're down the street. You go up to the window. You know, I know some of the breweries have plenty good fish and chips. And we kind of want to get to what some of the better places are to go. So I'll shoot the question kind of right back at you then. Sure. What, what are you looking for when you are trying to scope out a good place to grab some fish and chips? Well, 
it's a huge bonus if you know for a fact that the fish are being caught by someone connected to the restaurant. I mean, Jamie talked about that at, at Luna in Yahats. There are other, I don't know if greasy spoon's the right word, but there's places like um, E. coli Seafood in Cannon Beach and South Beach Fish Market on the south side of Newport where ostensibly you're dealing with like catch of the day stuff that's sort of fried up to order. And those places can be totally delicious. The level right above that might be places like Luna or Bow Picker where you might have a choice of what fish is going into your fish and chips. I mean, that's usually a sign of a, of a place that takes their fish and chips pretty seriously. Yeah. Up in uh, Neatarts, there's a place called, I think, The Schooner. Have you been there? You know, I've been to The Schooner. I did not get the fish and chips. I was, you get the oyster stew? No, I got something. I got like a like some sort of vegetable tie bowl for whatever reason, and it was not. Classic. Very good. Classic yeah. Neatarts. That, that is yeah. some Oregon Coast signature. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was we love our Thai fusion, actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay, back to fish and chips. So, yeah, I, I, there's that higher end level. There's also the brew pub fish and chips, which are usually done pretty well. And that's almost its own style, its own category. The best of the best are the places that we've mentioned, Luna, Bow Picker. There's a couple of others. But the idea there is knowing where your fish is being sourced from, offering a variety of fishes, whether it's cod or, or albacore, and frying it right. You want to see Honestly, you want to see a beer batter. You want it to have a little bit of a sheen on it. You don't want too much batter, but you want enough to know it's there. And then you don't want the fish to be over or under fried. You never really see it under fried, but if it gets over fried, you lose that sort of juicy fishy, you know, not in a bad way, but that the essence of the fish that really brings everything together. I think the, the chips themselves, too, are important. I mean, obviously, they play second fiddle to the fish, but that's something I consider when I look at a fish and chip spot. I know South Beach Fish Market, for example, their fries, I think, are some of the best that I've had in a fish and chips. I think they do a beer batter fry, um, but they really make the point to make good fries. Mm -hmm. Some places have great fish, and it's just like your frozen shoestring fry, which, you know, can be great, but, you know, I I want a little bit of something out of the fries. I can live with a bad fry if the fish is great, but I totally hear what you're saying. And um, it's a funny thing for me because... Typically in my life, I love a crispy little shoestring fry. That's like my favorite style. I like a nice, you know, surface area crunch, I guess. But with fish and chips, those tend, especially in the UK, but even here in the US, you tend to gravitate toward a thicker cut. Maybe even it goes up to the steak fry level. And the crunch might not always be there. But, you know, sometimes you just overlook it because you're dipping it in tartar sauce or ketchup or whatever and it still tastes pretty good. Hmm. What about chowder? Funny you mentioned that, Michael. We will talk a little bit about chowder, our other signature dish, right after a short break. So when the Oregon coast turns cold and gray, Jamie, with rain coming down in sheets, there are a few better ways to warm up than with a bowl of clam chowder. And I want to hear all about your quest to find the best bowl of chowder in the Oregon coast's chowder belt, as you put it. Mm -hmm. But first, Michael, what makes a good bowl of chowder? That's a great question. A lot of it's about the ratio. You want it to be, we're talking about an Oregon coast chowder, which is a very specific thing. You want it to be creamy, but not too creamy. You want some butter in there, but you don't want it to be swimming with butter. And then there's got to be actual clams in there. I've got to tell you, there's a lot of times <laughs> you go out for chowder, you're looking for clams. There's just no clams in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that in the end is the most important thing. But I got to throw this question over to Jamie because he's the guy that's done the legwork on the coast. I mean, yeah. So as you mentioned, Jim, I, I did this story looking at the chowder belt, as I described it. Looking at the map, I found that some of the most prominent 
shatter places, whether historically or are best known, fell into this one little spot between Lincoln City and Newport. So that it to me, that just made sense. This is kind of like our little chowder belt. You can find good chowder up and down the coast, don't get me wrong. But these are spots that you have some of the best known chowders for better or for not quite as good. What'd you come up with? I came up with a couple of chowders I thought were really, really good. You've got Georgie's Beachside Grill in Newport, which is this kind of little looks like a little 90s diner inside it's kind of cheesy the decor but it's got great clam chowder and my one of my favorite spots also is in um depot bay this place called the horn public house they do um good fish and chips as well um and they also do great chowder good cocktails and it's a, an awesome spot to sit upstairs in their sort of lofted dining room look out at the ocean when it's raining they've got the whale watch center right across the street and you can just see the ocean churn eat a nice hot bowl of chowder get a beer depot bay brewing is also based there it's a great spot. There's something savage about Depot Bay, the way it's just like <laughs> yeah. so right on the ocean there. And, and that little bridge that overlooks that tiny cove. And you don't know how the boats make it in and out to do the whale watching. It really is the ideal winter spot. That's where I'm headed this winter. I'm going to spend a couple of days out there in Depot Bay. And I, I love, I love that town. It's one of my favorite spots, not just because of the whales, but you have the chowder. Gracie's Sea Hag is another spot that people like to know to eat. It's your classic kind of old school Oregon Coast diner. It's dark. There's, you know, old, you know, faded pictures in the walls. And they do a great chowder as well. But there's uh, also, I think we talk about chowder on the coast. We have to talk about Moe's. They have been around the longest time. That would be um, the best known name. They are. I mean, yeah, you, you can't go through Oregon and not see a billboard that says Moe's or, you know, some town. They first opened in 1946, and they now have eight locations. I went to the, the sort of the main one in Newport, the original Moe's, and tried their chowder there, and I was not really ecstatic about it. Um, <laughs> got some pushback from Moe's about that. Um, sorry, Moe's. But it, it just, you know, it kind of came heaping over the cup, dripping down the sides. And it just wasn't, you talk about like having what makes a good chowder of having, you know, that, that really nice quality clam to it and having that nice, that sort of that fuller flavor. A lot of these more modern chowders that they're doing at the horn, they're doing at Georgie's really take that flavor into consideration. And most to me felt like an old school recipe, you know, sort of that post-war era classic style chowder, which was great at the time and still great for a lot of people. But coming especially from portland like a lot of tourists to the coast are i feel like there's a higher expectation for what kind of flavors you're getting out of a chowder yeah i mean at the risk of inciting the Moe's twitter account again <laughs> as you did i remember that very well it's not a great bowl of chowder and if you're going to the coast looking for a great bowl of chowder i would not go to Moe's. but if you want to go to a sort of iconic restaurant of the oregon coast every i think everyone has to go to Moe's once totally if you're a native oregonian you've already check that off your bucket list at some point in your life. But if not, go in, just don't expect the food to blow you away. Enjoy the experience nonetheless. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a classic, right? And it's a classic Oregon institution. And they don't need to change their chowder recipe. If they want to, uh, they might <laughs> rank higher on that <laughs> list, but there's, there's no need to um, because there's so many other good chowders out there. And I'm, I'm curious, Michael, you talked about you got to have clams in there. You have to have, you know, good clams. What for you makes um, a good clam in a chowder? Well, I mean, if you can find a chowder with Oregon razor clams, that's probably the pinnacle for me just because that's, you know, my favorite clam that you can get on the Oregon coast. And it's also, I mean, if we can pivot away from chowder for a second, you know, fried razor clams to me are almost, even though they're not nearly as popular, that's a more signature Oregon 
dish for me. Hmm. Fried razor clams and chips is something that I have to get every time I'm on the coast, including last weekend when I was on in Cannon Beach. There's just something about that chewiness, that meatiness. Maybe you add a little bacon just to add a different sort of flavor to the chowder, but that chewy firmness, not so firm that you're, you know, like eating gristle or something, but you want, you want to know it's there. Mm-hmm. That's what makes a great clam for a clam chowder. I feel like there's something in between chewiness and rubberiness. Like you want a nice chew to it, but it, it so easily gets, I feel like, rubbery. And I don't, I don't know if that's overcooking or if it's just the quality of clam or what. I think it's about the cook time mostly. But yeah, very well said, Jamie. I agree with that. You brought up bacon too, which I, I wanted to touch on in this because that's... It's controversial. I was just going to say, yeah. if we want to get Well, look, you don't want it to be all bacon. Right. Maybe you don't want bacon in there at all. And that's fine. If you want to add a little bit for the flavor, I'm not going to kick bacon out of bed on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Come on. I think that bacon flavor is is nice sometimes. There are some places that put a lot of bacon in. Dory Cove in Lincoln City is um, one of those places that I tried that had you know um, a sort of good old-fashioned mom-style chowder. For me, it was just so much bacon hit you over the head with it. And that to me is not what a chowder is about. I want to taste the clams. I don't want to taste the pig. Well said, and maybe the quote of the podcast uh, so far. Not so bad. So before we wrap up on clam chowder, fish and chips, Michael, any last word, recommendations, places to go, things to see that you would recommend? On the Saturday night when we were on the coast, we made reservations at the Driftwood, which is an old school. It almost feels like a chop house, but they're very seafood focused. Um, You can get steaks there like my sister-in-law did. But they make a very good chowder, a very good fish and chips. I had um, fried oysters there, and those were also very nice. So they do the whole gamut of Oregon Coast seafood really, really well. And also it's one of the closest good restaurants to Portland. So if you're traveling there from the metro area, that's a great place to stop. Really good service, old school vibe, old school ambiance, great lounge where they were showing college football and had some good beers on tap. So that's a, that's another place I would recommend. Good stuff. I want to give a shout out real quick in terms of fish and chips to Old Oregon Smokehouse, a place that did not come up in our conversation, but that I think is is one of the better ones on the coast. They've got two locations, one in Rockaway Beach and another one right across the street from Tillamook Cheese Factory. So if you're in Tillamook and you want lunch and the cheese factory is packed, head across the street to Old Oregon Smokehouse and get some good fish and chips right there. Or chowder, I think, or anything. Can I just plug a few Portland fish and chip places? Because I feel like that is my my domain here. (laughs) So when I think of fish and chips in Portland, I sort of think our fish and chip belt, if I can steal Jamie's. Ah. There we go. uh, Runs sort of north-south around 47th Avenue from the Hawthorne Fish House on Hawthorne up to the Horse Brass, uh, which is the oldest craft beer bar in America. And then there's a neighborhood place that actually in my neighborhood with very good fish and chips called Tabor Tavern. You can get them with good French fries. If I'm remembering correctly, they grate a little bit of lemon zest on top of the fish, which is a a nice touch. And they sometimes serve them with peas, depending on what time of day you're there. And then if you go a little further north on that line, you've got the Moon and Sixpence, uh, another classic English pub. So that's our sort of north-south equator of... um, (laughs) Good fish and chips. Although the other place to get great fish and chips in Portland are food carts, which probably shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. There's a place called Tallboy Fish and Chips, which I love a lot. And the Frying Scotsman, which is now out in Beaverton, is probably the single best fish and chip spot in Oregon, in my opinion. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a bold proclamation. <laughs> Got to check it out now. Yes, you do. <laughs> and, and Year of the Fish is another cart. The original Halibuts became a cart after being on 
Alberta. So we've got a lot of good fish and chip carts in Portland. So you needn't go all the way to the coast if you're looking for a fix. You can find it right here in Portland, out in the burbs. But since this is a travel program, you know, go west, young men. <laughs> go and <women>. west, everyone. <laughs> young everyone. I like it. Well, Michael, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. We really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. So, Jim, I know that we've been talking a lot about the coast, but um, I'm sure you've got some more adventures coming up that are in other parts of Oregon. So what's next up for you at the moment? What's up next for me? I mean, you kind of know my drill this time of year. We've gone through it every <laughs> I week. I do. Pretty much every week. I like to go ski. Newsflash. What I'm kind of what's on the back burner right now, that's still a phrase people say, right? Sure. It's on the back burner right now is I am, well, maybe I'm even move, moving it to the front burner. I don't know. I'm trying Ooh. to figure out what my like a big trip of the year should be right so i said in an earlier podcast i'm trying to do kind of one more centerpiece trip each season and one of those trips will kind of be like the big one and i'm kind of thinking okay you know the kind of stuff i like to do and and i've never been outside of north america save uh for a cruise that i did with my family so i'm thinking should it be a big trip to South America? Maybe go do some mountain stuff, some tourism stuff, maybe uh, skiing down there in the summertime, our summer, their winter, backpacking somewhere internationally, rock climbing down in Mexico, you know, still in North America, but going up further into Canada or to Alaska. I don't quite know yet, but I'm taking ideas, I suppose, uh, and, and researching some of my own. So that's kind of the, the fun thing that I've got going on at the moment. I like the South America idea. That's another place that I've wanted to get to and I plan on getting to in the next couple of years. I think you should do South America, man. That is uh, my girlfriend's a proponent of South America. <laughs> I'm big into it. We've kind of said uh, collectively when she and I get uh, a window to take a bigger trip of our own, that's what we're going to do. And you know, fingers crossed that we can both make the time. So that's not a current adventure, but it's surely something that I'm getting excited about and trying to nail down a little bit. So again, if anyone has any ideas for a good kind of mid-range fun trip, maybe a little bit more on the adventurous scale, let me know. Jamie, what do you got? Oh, well, Jim, I'm actually taking a page from your book. All right. And I'm looking towards the mountains right now. Last year, I did my first uh, ever snowshoeing trip up in Mount Hood. I remember that. Yeah, and it wasn't my favorite outdoor adventure, but it was still really nice to see uh, those mountain trails in a different different setting. That's sort of that fresh winter coat of snow. So I'm now looking to head back there and have a second experience and uh, maybe think about going up to White River West. and so doing right some... off Oregon 35 there? Yeah. Near, near Mount Hood Meadows-ish, am, yeah. I, am I right? Yeah, that's, that's right. It's kind of there on the left side of the highway yep. as you're coming from Portland. Um, it just looks like a beautiful spot. Um, so I'm thinking about maybe doing that and trying out a little snow action this year. Sounds like a lot of fun. And and you've written about, and we're going to actually cover in a future podcast episode, but snowshoeing a very approachable winter activity for anyone mm -hmm. who, like yourself, isn't a steadfast winter dude. Yeah, it's great for people who like to hike, um, but who want to get out when there's snow on the trail. What's not to like, you know? That's it. That's it. Well, Jamie, I think it is time to say goodbye for now. And until next time, you can subscribe to Peak Northwest wherever, of course, you get your podcast. You can watch our videos on the Oregonians YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram at Peak Northwest. This episode of the podcast was produced by myself, Jim Ryan, alongside Jamie Hale and Dave Killen. Many thanks, of course, to our guest, Michael Russell. 
Stay safe and happy trails, everyone. Until next week, we leave you with this 10 Seconds of Zen. <laughs>